Hello and welcome to Sabermetrics, a new podcast uh, that is a sincere and critical analysis of fate, the series where you fuck the mythological King Archer in order for to get more magic. Um, I'm Sierra, my pronouns are she, her. Hi, I'm Dustin, my pronouns are he, they. Uh, uh, also, <laughs> one thing I forgot to mention before we started recording this is I actually uh, let some of my friends know the the title of the podcast we were going to do, uh-huh. and they all unanimously thought that I got sucked off by this historical King Arthur was a better title for the podcast, uh, so I think you win this one. Fuck yeah. Okay, no, never mind. That, it, fuck Sabermetrics. It's I got sucked off by historical King Arthur. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to it. let you know that. <laughs> I mean, well, listen, I'm happy with either name because I'm just going to remind everyone that you fuck King Arthur in this one. Yeah, um, you do. I mean, yeah, you do. That is a thing you absolutely do. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. Probably. Uh, but yeah, this is a podcast where uh, Sierra and I are taking a journey through uh, all of the works of uh, Nasu. I has forgotten his. Uh, I'm gonna look up part of his name. I'm gonna look up the dude's actual name because I'm gonna feel bad if we just don't. <laughs> yeah, because I I always just know him as Nasu. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, it's wild that Wikipedia just doesn't say it immediately. I Hold know, on. right? It should be uh, in uh, the interview. That Kinoko Nasu. Thank you. Uh, and the illustrator is uh, Takashi uh, Takauchi, um, collectively known as Type Moon. Um, yeah, and uh, we are going to go mostly in release order, if, if at all possible. Um, we depending it'll sort of depend when it comes to the stuff that's not as easily available such as like the uh light novels and things like that but you know uh we won't be going in like weird chronological timeline order because that sucks uh we're going by release which means the first thing that we will be covering uh is a fate stay night uh the visual novel specifically like the um Rialta Nua like fan patch that like combines uh, the original Fate Stay Night visual novel with the enhancements from the Rialta Nua edition. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, what we'll probably end up doing is uh, like we'll do the actual Fate series in chronological release order, and then stuff like Tsukihime or Melty Blood because I'm gonna make you fucking play Melty Blood. Uh, oh yeah, we'll... that's right. Because I think technically Tsukihime is the very first visual novel that Type Moon ever made. Yes, it is. Um, and Melty Blood just whips ass. I just, I listen. <laughs> I just want to make you play Melty Blood with me. That's the real thing. Here. This, this whole podcast just a long yeah, con to elaborate. make you play Melty Blood. A lot of a lot of work on your part for that elaborate scheme. I mean, yeah, but it also does sound like some stupid shit I would do. That's true, yeah. Um, but we'll pepper those in when and where we want to. Um, like, Tsukihime will probably end up doing when the Switch release comes out, um, etc. Melty Blood will end up doing on a garbage can behind uh, <laughs> somewhere else or in a bathroom of a hotel because yeah. that's the only place you're allowed to play Melty Blood. In the local Denny's. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh, absolutely. That's how you play Melty Blood. Like, God intended. Uh... But yeah, uh, before we actually begin uh, with Fate Stay Night, um, because Fate Stay Night has multiple routes, um, uh, we are obviously starting with the Fate route. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is an interview that uh, ta- uh, 
that Nasu Kinoko and Takeuchi Takashi uh, did with Dengenki online. Um, I found a translated version of it uh, on comipress.com dating back to, and this will make you feel old, 2006. Uh, oh, I was about to be like, oh, that's not that long ago. Uh, and then I they... realized that's 15 years and I turned to dust. Yeah, uh, where they talk about, um, you know, the this is an interview that they did when Rialta Nua uh, version was released. Um, and, you know, they just got asked some questions about fate. Uh, and um, just going to read a, a couple sections here real quick. Uh, so the question... Uh, first question is, how did you come to make the decision of creating Fate? Nasu answers, Fate was originally a story I wrote when I was in college. In it, the gender of Saber and Shiro were opposite to now, uh, but the essential theme had not been changed. It's a story about legendary heroes and, quote, a boy meets a girl, uh, unquote. Um, mm-hmm. Takeuchi then responds, I created it because I just liked it, and I... <laughs> power move. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I want to make no, something like Tsukihime, but more sophisticated. I changed the character's gender in order to have them fit in with the gamers today. Um, and then Nasu says something that makes me really like Takeuchi, <laughs> where he says, well, I remember one of the reasons it was changed is because he made the request to let him draw a girl with armor. Finally, it came true. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Takeuchi, I'm fucking a king. I appreciate you, Takeuchi. Takeuchi uh, just being like, yeah, man, I wanted to do this shit, and I just went for it. it like, <laughs> I, it is hard for me to read this and not go anything other than, man, this is the, oh, the fucking work of some people who just wanted to make the shit they wanted to make, huh? Yeah. Uh, this is, this is, it, it has a very, like, sort of early era Gynax feel to it back yeah. then. Yeah. Icon animations. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the second section I wanted to read, um, because it's the most relevant to I think getting a uh like basic framework about how to interpret the the themes of the game directly from the mouth of the creator. And well obviously like, you know, death of the author and all that, it's the the word of the creator isn't everything, but it, I think it does serve as, like, a, a useful um, jumping-off point. So, um, the interviewer asks, what was the theme you were trying to express? And Nasu replies, the main thing is conquering oneself. There are three storylines in Fate. Each has a different theme. The first one is, uh, the first one, and he's referring to Fate root here, is the oneself as an ideal. The second one, the Unlimited Blade Works route, is struggling with oneself, uh, struggling with oneself as an ideal, and the third one is, uh, and he's referring to Heaven's Feel, the friction with real and ideal. Huh. Okay. Uh, the this game, uh, he continues. This game is describing the growth of the main character Emi Ashiro. The first storyline shows his slanted mind. The next storyline shows his resolve. And the last storyline gives another revolu- resolution for him as a human. All three storylines are essentially equal, but they have different forms. Uh, w- one might even say it's thesis, antithesis, <laughs> synthesis. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, like I joke, but like, right. yeah, that, that's actually what that is, huh? That That is literally just what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I just thought that would be uh, uh, mm-hmm. 
Uh, this, and honestly, this will probably uh, line up with what we are about to discuss anyway. It, it uh, but literally it's just nice was already lining up with themes well. I have written down in my notes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's... Nasu isn't subtle. Um... There is... There are many things you can say about Nasu, but, like, subtlety isn't necessarily one of the things uh, he does. So, uh, I think this is actually, like, a good time to talk about how we feel about, like, the... I mean, first, let's talk, actually, about um, how we're gonna go about this, uh, like, procedurally. Um, so... Yeah. So, I, I have... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I was gonna say, like, I have written a condensed story summary of, mm-hmm. of what we have covered so that way uh if you are not reading along yourself which you know fair yeah it's, uh-huh. it's, a, it's an in, it's an uh it's, it's an a endeavor. um you can still keep track of what is going on in the story um and also i think it uh going through a story summary will also uh help us find places where we want to interject and start, you know, jumping off into analysis. So I'm I'm going to be reading the summary, and at any point, one of us can just interject and say, "Hey, I want to talk about what just happened." Yeah, um, and I, I think I should. We should also be clear. Uh, I both of us are familiar with Unlimited Blade Works because we've seen an anime. Um, yeah, and uh, I am familiar with Fate Zero, um, mm-hmm. as well as other parts of the franchise, but things like Fate Extra exist in these weird side universes that mm-hmm. Nasu likes to create. So Fate Zero to Fate Stay Night is really the only truly direct line of uh, continuity that exists in the, ent- in the entire franchise. Is that true? Pretty much, yeah. E- even uh, even the quote-unquote sequel to Fate Stay Night is a sequel to a route that does not technically exist. Huh. Interesting. Um, what I was going to say is uh, I also have, I have like a passing familiarity with some of Fate Zero, but like mostly next to nothing. Um, but I do have some familiarity with both the Fate route and the uh, Heaven's Feel route. Um, however, with regards to spoilers, we are going to do our best to like not be explicit about information, uh, especially from other routes. Um, however, it is obviously going to color our analysis and our critical uh, uh, interpretation of the work because like that's how that's how a critical read works um yeah yeah so we're we're not gonna like be dicks about it and and spoil things just to flex our knowledge but you know uh if if we find that we are unable to uh, you know talk about something uh, to the extent that we want to um you know if we feel it necessitate, if we feel it necessitates a spoiler spoiler warning, we will provide it. Yeah, uh, um, especially considering like I don't have a literal book I can write annotations in. Um, there may be points where I just say, "Hey, we just need to have a quick spoiler warning here, so I can talk about what I feel is like the significant relevance of this specific scene that is hard to talk about without future information." Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, All right. So Any other with, uh, housekeeping? Uh, not really. Uh, I've got some voice actors going, but I think oh. I will uh, pepper them in um, at the end of the prologue section and at the end of the third day. Okay, that works for me. Um, so uh, I will go ahead and uh, get started. Um, so 
with the prologue, uh, we start from the perspective of Rin Tosaka, a well-to-do magus. Uh, specifically, we start in a flashback um, where she remembers how... She basically remembers the last interaction with her father uh, before he went off uh, to participate in a previous Holy Grail war that happened ten years ago when Rin was young, um, leaving her with all his possessions, a pendant that contain a pendant that contains ten years worth of magical energy that he stored using Rin's own mana, and a wish for her to win the next Grail war. Um, Rin is eight in this memory, uh, so explicitly putting her at 18, which given the nature of this uh, visual novel, is important. Yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yep, it is important. Uh, I, I mean, I guess we should be clear about this. Uh, people do fuck in this novel, and not, like, yeah. off-screen. Like, this novel was originally pornographic. Yeah, it was an arrow gay. Uh. Yeah. Um... <laughs> So it is, it is important that characters are 18, because otherwise we would not be talking about this novel. Uh, but yeah, I think, I remember you tweeted about um, something you liked about Rin's memory here, in, in that she was, she remembers wishing she had known that she'd never see her father again, because if, if she did, mm-hmm. she'd, she would have told him uh, uh, jokes. Yeah, so she specifically uh, uh, says, um, if I had known it was our final moment together, I would have made him laugh with my best jokes. I had practiced telling jokes a lot. And it's like, damn, man, that uh, that's that is both like deeply, deeply heartbreaking. Um, and it also makes it very clear uh, both Rin's character and also the kind of environment that she is living in. Like her, her solution isn't, oh, I'm going to like play with my dad or anything it is i am going to work and actively practice and study how to tell a joke in order yeah. to make my dad laugh and it's like oh ooh, wow you're you've had a good childhood so far huh rin <laughs> yeah uh I-, I love that detail about her practicing mm-hmm. to tell jokes uh so uh after Oh, Mm -hmm. sorry, go ahead. Uh, Well, I was just going to say, it's, uh, like, so this is a thing that we will come back to a lot, but it is, um, Rin especially ends up being an instrument, uh, I mean, Rin and Shiro as a, Rin, Shiro, and Saber actually all as a triumvirate end up being, uh, this really incredible demonstration of the ways, uh, uh, folks will instrumentalize themselves as tools, um, or, uh, uh, engage in professionalism or uh, uh, like disciplined practices to avoid sincere intimacy. And like, we see that begin to happen with Rin like right here because she doesn't know how to like engage sincerely with her dad. And so her solution is like, yeah, I'm going to practice telling jokes because that's what you do when you're a kid. Like you, you practice doing the one thing you think will work. Yeah. Um, we wake up from this flashback uh, at what Rin thinks is 7 a.m. and goes through her daily routines and heads to school. So uh, how- Rin thinks, uh, uh, oh, she's late. Like, she is sure she's late and is, like, almost relieved to have an opportunity to be late uh, for once and not be uh, absolutely perfect. Um, and is, like, going through her day, like, oh... 
uh, wow, I'm actually late for once. And there was like a sense of relief that she does not have to be perfect. And yet. And yet. <laughs> it turns out all her clocks were an hour fast and she arrives much earlier than usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, she meets her friend Mitsuzuri Ayako. Who is a fucking queen. Uh, I great. love this bitch. This bitch is... rules. <laughs> She is the captain of the archery club, uh, and they helpfully explain their own weird frenemy relationship to each other so the audience can understand what their deal is. Turns out they have a competition to see who can get a boyfriend first. Neither of them have made any progress on that. I I mean, like, and Uh, also, Rin makes it pretty clear, like, she is not actually trying to make any progress on that. Like, even her relationship with uh, 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 Mitsuzuru is, like, kept as this frenemy relationship to keep a degree of distance. Yeah. Um, she, she goes into explicitly why a little later here mm-hmm. on this, in this prologue. Uh, but yeah, we, we get the first, um, this first meeting with uh, Mitsuru, Mitsuzuri is a important indication of like how she just deals with people in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she eventually breaks off the conversation since the archery club is about to start and she doesn't want to be a bother and just sit there staring at everybody. Uh, on her way out, however, she meets Shinji Mato, the vice captain of the archery club, and a fucking creep. I want to beat this scumfuck to death. <laughs> uh, Shinji assumes that Rin is interested in the archery team because she thinks he's hot, which couldn't be further from the, from the truth. He tries to invade her personal space for some ill-advised flirting, but she brushes him off and leaves. Uh- I, I think you are underselling what she does here. Um, yes, yes she, I, I am she kind of. viscerally fucking murders this man. Like, yeah. uh, she initially is like, yeah, I'm leaving here. Uh, and he's like, well, you obviously don't have any reason to be here. And she's like, I agree. I didn't really have any reason to be here. And he goes, well, obviously that means you were coming here to see me. Uh, and he moves in closer and is like clearly trying to flirt with her. And she's like, no, that's not what's happening. And he doesn't get that picture. Um, and moves in a little closer again, and she basically lays it out as flatly for him as possible in, like, the way you dream you would, and basically just tells this dude, I could not be less fucking interested in you if you were the last man on Earth, eat shit and die, and then walks away, and he is so upset about it, um, but the other thing that is clear here is, uh, so... I am curious what this story's relationship with gender is going to be and with gender dynamics. Yeah. Because Shinji's, yeah. Uh, uh, and I don't mean that like in a uh, sort of way, but rather like there is a clear power dynamic here that is informed by gender dynamics and by the fact that Shinji is a man. Like there is a clear sexual threat here. Yes. Um, Shinji is encroaching in on her space and touching Rin and, like, there is a clear tension of violence here that is diffused because it's the beginning of the novel, because they're in a public space, because Rin tells him off. But there is that tension there still, and there is other stuff that happens later that further heightens that tension. Um, but there is, like, uh, this novel is not uh, ignoring that, and in fact is, like, seeming like it wants to engage with the fact that Shinji is uh, is bringing to bear a threat of sexual violence in a way that yeah. he thinks is appealing um, because he feels that cornering a person like that is valuable. 
anime. Yeah, and like because it's a visual novel, there isn't a whole lot of animation. It's mostly like um, you know cycling through various uh, CG artwork uh, that they made of characters for different expressions. But one of the things it does, which it doesn't do very often. Um, but when Shinji, like, gets up in Rin's personal space, uh, it actually zooms in on his artwork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to basically have it fill more of the screen, uh, which I think is an effective touch. And, like... It's the only time they do that. They want, they want you to... Yeah, it, it doesn't feel good. No. Uh, <laughs> it, like, it, this novel is not interested in you thinking Shinji is a good dude. Like, from the jump, it is making it clear, A... Oh, he is performing, like, this uh, attractive dude shtick for the women around him. B, he is attractive to many women. C, he is not interested in the people who are actively attracted to him and is instead interested in Chase. Uh, And D, he is a threat. Like, explicitly, from the outset, Shinji is a threat of violence to women around him. Yeah, Uh, there's a lot of um, bad people um, in the Fate franchise, uh, Shinji is one who is probably the most hateable. <laughs> um, uh, out of uh, of the one of of the teens, he, yes, yeah, of the teens, like there, uh, pretty much in in in, in, every, in every iteration he uh, he's in, he is eminently hateable. Uh, um, uh, okay, I think he yeah. is the easiest to hate, um, because like yeah. that. But I, I would argue there are characters who are more hateable and. Uh, we'll get to this at the end when I want to talk about like my general thoughts of this part of the novel so far. Yeah, sure. Uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, continue here. Um, inside the school building, Rin has a brief conversation with the student president, uh, student body president Issei Ryudo. Uh, also, some redheaded guy named Emiyashiro is there. He's probably not important. No, he seems like a generic like NPC uh, and probably doesn't seem yeah. relevant. Um, and it's uh, fine. I, I like how they I like how you meet Issei here mm-hmm. um, because of how they play around with your perceptions of what Issei should be mm-hmm. uh, because Rin doesn't tend to interact with people very much like the impression you get from Issei is like oh I know what this dude's deal is he is the stick in the mud student body president <laughs> and that's all you get from him in the prologue pretty uh-huh. much and he's extremely not that he's a dumb asshole I love this stupid king. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I just love how uh like Nasu takes advantage of starting you out with a prologue to establish the setting mm-hmm. and then like fleshing out you know yeah what Rin saw mm-hmm. uh, through a different perspective. It's it's I I love it. Mm-hmm. Um uh, during her lunch break, Rin overhears some girl she's acquainted with uh, gossiping about how annoying it is that the boys always stare at Rin. Uh, uh, Rin does uh, isn't particularly comfortable with co- this conversation and heads to the roof to eat her lunch in solitude, where she reflects on how, due to her dedication to being the best at magic, athletics, and academics, she hasn't spent much time socializing with anyone. This is partly intentional, though. The existence of magic is to be kept secret, and any magus whose identity is discovered by a normal person must eliminate the witness. Rin would prefer not to murder anyone, so she keeps herself distant from her classmates. Well, it it, it is... Uh, even her um, uh, being a academically and physically uh, successful person 
is in part uh, an effort to both maintain her distance from other people and also to yeah. be a successful Magus, because both of those things are required to be a successful Magus. Um, and uh, the generation of distance is... So it is both to protect other people, but it feels um, like it's a thing she is doing to protect herself as well, more than that. Yeah, they're kind of, like, tied into each other in, like, a uh, unhealthy loop. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and she is fixated on, be- because of the family that she is from, is a uh, prominent and powerful family. Um, and she is its only remaining scion, as far as we're aware. Um, yeah. She has this fixation that she has to be um, the best and has to be perfect. Um, and, like, that is partly why she was so relieved that she might actually be late for once um and why she is frustrated when it turns out no you're actually even earlier because even when she tries to fuck up she can't like her body won't let her uh yeah she's she's perfect because she feels like she needs to not because she wants to be Mm -hmm. um and Um, i believe this is the point where rin highlights what the difference is between sorcery and magic correct uh, I think it might be. I, I didn't actually write that part down, but I know you so, love this, so yes, you so, go for it. This is something that I think is relevant because it is how um, th- how this series will deal with magic or magecraft and sorcery is um, very thematically important. Uh, Rin highlights that there is an important and significant distinction between uh, magic, or what is called magecraft, which uh, people can do, and sorcery, which is bullshit and fake, even if it's real. Um, so magecraft is things that are achievable through time and effort um, that magecraft just sort of lets you cheat uh, into existence. Um, but it's real and material things. Like you can you can generate heat. Um, uh, you could generate heat anyway. You could fix a door. Well, you could fix a door anyway. Um, it's things you could achieve with effort and with time and with like regular labor. Um, even if it doesn't immediately appear so. Um, sorcery, however, is effectively miracles. Like, it, sorceries are things that should not work, should not exist, should not happen, and do anyway. Um, sorceries should not happen, and there are a total of five sorcerers in the world. Um, or it... I can't remember if it's five sorcerers in the world or five sorcerers in existence. Mm, actually, no, I remember. It is five sorcerers in existence. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember the exact line. It, um, uh, uh, it, I, I, it is five sorcerers that are in existence, I believe. Um, Rin also highlights uh, that magic itself, or magecraft, is uh, because it's something that you can achieve like through just time and effort. Um it is also fundamentally meaningless and valueless because it will produce a life that has uh, far less joy in it than a regular life. Um, Which may explain why so many ma- uh, mages are just absolute dicks. <laughs> I, I mean, I, we'll, we'll get to it. I yeah. have thoughts and ideas. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to it. But like one of the running themes of fate is that like... Rin is one of the only mages who is not just a horrible person. I, I mean, here's the thing. Rin wishes she was a horrible person. 
everything about Rin thinks it would be easier if she was a horrible person. That's why she tries to divorce herself from empathy constantly. Yeah, but she, she can't bring herself to be a horrible person. I mean, yes, but I, I would argue in part, like, that is because her dad disappeared. Like, that is because she did not have folks who forced and trained her to do so because she was yeah. poorly trained. Like, there are characters who we will encounter who had a similar upbringing um, and were brought up a little different who are terrible people. Like, Rin tries her hardest to be a bad person who does not care about other people, and that is why she, like, hides in that professionalism. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I, I do like this part for how much insight it gives about magic, and it's like uh -huh. our first indication of, like, uh, oh, Nasu is a fucking nerd. <laughs> a, a, Nasu's uh, a nerd. B, Nasu is maybe doing a thing thematically. Yeah. Uh -huh. Um... So after school, uh, Rin heads home, heads back home and sees that a man named Kyrie, who she appears to be familiar with, has left her a message on her answering machine. Kyrie reminds her that only two spots are remaining in the Holy Grail War, and if Rin wants to sit the war out, she should quickly take refuge at the church. Rin does intend to, to, intend to participate, but she's been putting off joining for a reason. She hasn't been able to find a focus symbol to aid in her summoning ritual. Rin explains that in order for a Magus to join the Civil, uh, join the Civil War, join the Grail War, uh, they must summon a servant. She wants to summon the most powerful of all servant. She wants to summon the most powerful of all servant servants, Saber, but her dad never left her a summoning catalyst. While summoning servants is possible without a symbol, the results would be unpredictable. Rin, however, is running out of time, so she decides to summon without a catalyst, reasoning that no one other than her would even be capable of being Saber's master anyway. <laughs> Which, I fucking love that about Rin. She's such a stupid like, asshole. Well, I love I'm the her. best, so no one would summon Saber anyway. <laughs> uh, she's like, yeah, a, a bitch is tight as hell. What you want from me? And it's like, it's true. You are tight. I, I do love you, Rin. You're delightful. Um... Yeah. Uh, Alright, uh, cut to a few minutes before 2am. Rin is about to start the summoning ritual in her creepy occult basement since her magic power peaks at 2. Which, so I, I want to quickly make a, a divergence um, to talk about Nasu's writing. Um, which, honestly, I was prepared for the I was worst. prepared for so much worse. Uh, uh, okay, I have tried uh, I to think, read the... Go ahead. I think, I think Nasu is actually like... I don't think he's a bad writer. He's just a sloppy one. I would, I would agree. Um, mm, okay, so I it, part of me wonders what Nasu's writing is like in his native language when it's not being put through translation. That's true. It is hard to tell of, how much of it is like fan. It, it is tough to tell how much of it is just like translation wonkiness and how much of it is actually Nasu. Yes. So I, it, it is hard for me to parse out exactly how much of it is translation part or wonkiness but even even with trans because i'm pretty sure at least a, a portion of it is translation wonkiness um there's like odd phrasing and odd sentence structure that like a thorough localization would have translated a little better um Sp it, specifically the one i'm thinking of is, is the one that happens at, at this point which uh it goes late at night the clock is about to strike two this is the best time frame for my magical energy. 
the peak of my magical energy is at exactly two in the morning. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> which I, is very funny to me. I, I think you're right, though. I think he is, to a degree, a sloppy writer. Um, what I am so, I have tried to read fan translations of the Bakemonogatari visual novels. Um, and that was what I was expecting here. Like, uh, it bad and near nonsensical to parse at points. Um, that's not what we got here. Um, and instead, Nasu, I think, is sloppy, like you said, but is when he gets, uh, when he hits a flow, um, and he's willing to let himself be sparse and evocative, ends up being, um, really effective. He, he has this really strong habit of uh, generating uh, uh, really evocative uh, images and making those yeah. material and real, um, which we'll actually get to in a, uh, a second here. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I actually might be... <laughs> I actually had a similar scene in mind uh, when... It's a similar scene with Shiro, where Shiro is doing something something yeah, uh-huh, almost have, equivalent to what Rin is about to do here. I but have yeah. both of those quotes <laughs> quotes from both of those scenes written down in my notes, specifically for that yeah. reason. Yeah, like, Nasu has talent. Yes. Um, uh-huh. And, and, like, I think, of, I think of a lot of the writing in this is, like, if not necessarily great, at the very least, decent or solid. It, at the very minimum... It is always interesting, like, from what yeah. I've encountered here. I, I have never encountered something that is, like, both bad and boring, um, and that is enough for me. Like, uh, you can be bad, man. You just have to be interesting, and he's willing to try things, which I am appreciative of. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to take a quick diversion just to sort of get mm-hmm. our thoughts down on his uh, his writing style. Uh, but yeah, so Rin draws a summoning circle with melted jewels and flips the formless switch, which I, I, is the, a phrase the, I really like a lot. So uh, the full quote from this scene is, I flip the formless switch inside me. I feel a sensation as if the contents of my body are being exchanged. The usual nerves invert into circuits transmitting magical energy. From this point, Tosaka Rin is not human. I should become a tool to attain mystic power. Um... And again, we have this way that magic instrumentalizes folks into tools for violence. Um, it, yeah, I, I even have part of that here in the synopsis, where the purpose of this is to transform her body into a magical circuit that is capable of channeling enough mana to complete the summoning ritual. Like, mm-hmm. instead of being a person, she is being a catalyst. She, she literally says the body of a magus is nothing more than a circuit, a circuit to connect the spiritual and the real. And, like, I, this is something that we are going to hit a lot, or at least that I am going to pull out a lot. Um, and it is this... So, uh, I think this is, like, a point to talk about something that I think is going to be a major theme for this uh, work. Um, and it is the way... Uh, the vulnerable are instrumentalized towards systems of violence and towards their perpetuation. Rin is 18 now, um, but she has been groomed since she was a child to be a tool in a literal war um, where people are killed constantly. She is a person who has been trained and indoctrinated her whole life to not think of herself as a person and instead a tool of violence. Uh, and, And to think her literal body is nothing but a tool of violence. And we will see this happen again and again where the vulnerable, especially children are used to perpetuate these systems. 
Yeah, mages in this universe are encouraged to dehumanize themselves and in turn dehumanize others. Um, and that takes a very literal um, uh, form in this summoning ritual. Not only that, mages are explicitly, like, uh, I, uh, this is something that we will cover in this. Uh, uh, mages are, like, almost explicitly allegorical for generational wealth. Like, the amount of yeah. magic that you can accrue is defined by the amount of magic circuits you have. Uh, and a single person only will have a few magic circuits at once. However, yeah, you can I, pass I've them. got this in the summary somewhere mm -hmm. here, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll get to this later, but, like, Mages and the mage system in general is, like, explicitly, like, systemic generational wealth and generational accrual of power. And, like... Yeah, it's literal eugenics. In, yes, uh-huh. In parts, yeah. And so we will hit this again and again, but it is this idea that magic, a thing that is useless and a cheat around, uh, and a way to uh, amplify generational wealth... Um, in exchange, instead of uh, application of time and effort and labor, um, is a thing that it forces the violence uh, onto the vulnerable and onto uh, the suggestible. Yeah, I, I'll admit when when I started Fate Stay Night, like uh, I did not think that it would be an no. as close an allegory for mm -mm. the wealth gap as it actually no, is. No, I did not think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel it is worth mentioning. Um, yeah, like, full-ass, like, communist, like, so my perspective is maybe skewed, but, like, I, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a particularly glowing review of uh, the wealthy. No. Um... Yeah, uh, the series in general just doesn't have a good view of mages, so I don't think it's, no. it's unfair to read this as uh, Nasugo and this shit sucks. Yeah, um, th this this novel feels so far like a reaction towards um, extant systems of systems of power, um, and I I think we will get more into that later. Uh, yeah. So, continuing with the summoning ritual, um, Rin realizes too late that she has made a crucial error. Mm -hmm. She never fixed her clocks, uh, which means that she actually started the ritual an hour too early, um, where she is not at the peak of her magical ability. Uh, she soon hears a crashing <clears throat> sound upstairs, thinking that her ritual may have failed, and runs up to meet her new servant. Archer, who has fallen through the roof and is now sitting on her couch amidst the debris, in one of my favorite background arts um, okay, so uh, of this section. I am just going to say this. Archer's kind of hot. Like, I kind of... <laughs> I, I didn't get it in the anime. I get it. Not, like, now I get it. All it took, all it took was for you to see him uh, lounging on a broken couch and dresser. No, it's him being a bitch, is the real oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, he is such a bitch. He is such a bitch, him. and I was like, yeah, I'd fuck him. Uh, <laughs> uh, the two of them spend a little time trying to figure out if the summoning actually worked or if they're enemies who should be wary of, e wary of each other. Eventually, they both conclude that they are master and servant, and Archer proceeds to be kind of a dick and negrin for a while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rin eventually loses her temper and expends one of the three command seals on her hand. 
In German, she yells, I announce the command spell by the order of the Holy Grail. Give the law of obedience to this one, my servant. Um, which is uh, the first indication of Nasu's love of having his main characters say, uh, sick as hell elaborate chance. Uh-huh. I, we're going to get um, to some sick ass chance in this and it rules. <laughs> I, th- I mean, the story opens up with uh, a sick as hell chant. Um, uh, I, I am the bone of my sword, which so whips us. That's uh, for me. That was after the prologue. The oh, was it after the prologue? Day. I couldn't remember. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah. Uh, the, uh, there uh, was also one bit of prose uh, during the summoning ritual that I thought was sure. interesting and uh, potentially future relevant, which is uh, uh, Rin describing like the sensation of casting uh, magic, which was like physically damaging. Like it, it is violently painful to do this magic. Um, yeah. which I think is something important. Like it, it is deeply physically painful to work magic like this. And she describes it as a, a, an illusion of myself growing horns, an illusion of wings growing out of my back, an illusion of scales forming on my hands, a sensation of being in water, stab, stab, swords are driven into my body. Yeah. Uh, magic isn't fun. <laughs> no, it's bad. Actually, magic is <laughs> fucked up and horrifying. Yeah. You're forcing your body to do something it, it was never really supposed to do. Mm hmm. Um, at first, Archer is flabbergasted that Rin would use a command spell on such a request. He explains that normally a command spell is used to give a very specific short-term order that a servant has no choice to obey. In addition, servants are given a sharp boost in power to allow them to, allow them to complete orders that would normally be impossible. Uh, however, orders that are too broad or last a long time have a much weaker or no effect. All masters only have three command seals, displayed as a series of magic tattoos somewhere on their body, usually on the back of a hand, that they can use to cast command spells. Rin assumes she just wasted one of hers, but Archer informs her that her magic is so good that her command was far more effective than usual. If he were to disagree with her or disobey her, he would immediately become less powerful. Uh, Rin takes advantage of this new knowledge by telling Archer to clean up the mess he made in her living room because Rin fucking rules. <laughs> yeah, man, you want to be a bitch? Fine. You can be a little bitch. Put on this maid uniform. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to capture uh, what I like about um, this scene because uh, I kind of just have to quote the whole thing uh, because I... Rin and Archer's like catty dialogue with each other is such a, a big part of why this exposition works in the first place. Yeah, I mean, like there is both uh, uh, there is an energy and a self possessed confidence that both characters have as they like continually are trying to m- maneuver into having the upper hand in the conversation, um, and they're also like both clearly in their element to a degree and like it is it is fun to watch these characters bounce off of each other like they have a very enjoyable dynamic to watch yeah uh i i like them a lot Mm -hmm. um the next day rin and archer chat with each other about what their next move should be um well actually before i get to that i think yeah i think there's some uh stuff i want to go over Mm -hmm. um in terms of, like, I believe uh, this is around where Rin talks about what heroes are. Um, so yes. a, a, hero, a hero that becomes eternal in people's minds is no longer human after their death and is promoted to another form of existence. 
Humans who bring about miracles, save people, and achieve great deeds are called heroes even after their death. After being so called, they are promoted to heroic spirits after their death and become guardians to humanity. Um, this is what... Um, this is theoretically what you are summoning for the Grail War. It's a it's a bit unique in Arch's scenario, but we won't get to that for a while. Yeah. So, um, like, part of the premise here is that, uh, uh, like, heroes are basically um, so it, rather than the Arthur that is summoned being the historical King Arthur, it is instead uh, the product of the legend of King Arthur being so powerful and so resonant that it has. That Arthur has basically attained a second life as a uh, uh, a new person, or yeah. as a spirit uh, for or summonable for the Holy Grail War. Yeah, I, I like how Rin describes it, where she says it is people's minds that create a hero. People's wishes that this is how things should be give them form and set them up as real. Authenticity does not matter. They can have form as long as they have fame as a legend and people have faith. Which, man, I'm thinking about Fate Extra Last Encore, mm -hmm. which will take us a while to get to, but I will need to write that down, so because it's uh, going to be relevant for that series. Well, I, uh, this idea of truth or authenticity being a fundamentally irrelevant concept is uh, a thing that will continue to be revisited in this yeah. uh, a lot. Um, and, and it's like it continually uh, has folks emphasizing like truth or authenticity is like a bullshit concept. It doesn't mean anything in the face of material results and power and belief. Yeah. Um, Rin also mentions that like the, the thing that does this summary summoning that should be impossible is is the Holy Grail, uh, which is like this um, uh, mystical. Uh, item that can essentially do sorcery mm -hmm. um and in order to summon a uh hero into the world it assigns that hero a specific class um knight of the sword saber knight of the lance lancer knight of the bow archer mounted mounted soldier rider magus caster silent killer assassin and mad warrior berserker uh, those are all the servants that get summoned to the Holy Grail War. Or at least that's how it's supposed to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is like the core of the Holy Grail War. Uh, and is this where she also describes that what the purpose of the Holy Grail War is? Um, I believe that comes later. Okay. This is, um, uh, however, where she does talk about the fact that uh, this Holy Grail is not the Holy Grail. She explicitly says that it's not the Grail that received the blood of God. It's not the Holy Grail of Jesus, but it is certainly equal in power if that Grail existed ever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, like, that is part of where, uh, uh, again, this reemphasis of, like, truth or authenticity is, like, a fundamentally irrelevant thing. Because yeah. uh, this shit can grant wishes, dude. Like, it does not matter. Yeah, who cares if it's the same thing that, you know, Jesus drank from, like, it, it, it's powerful enough that it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, the next day, Rin and Archer chat with each other about what their next move should be. Archer doesn't have any strong magical talent like a caster servant might, so he's not able to sense at a distance if there are any other masters or servants in Fuyuki City. 
Rin decides the best thing to do is to scout the city on foot. Their search is uneventful, though, and they eventually stop at a park. Rin explains to Archer that this park was where the previous Holy Grail War ended ten years ago. A huge fire erupted there and burned for an entire day, destroying much of the town. The town was rebuilt, but the area where they now stand was left as it was and turned into a park. Um, the art of this is uh, really nice. It is a basically just charred white like field where of of trees technically still stand there, but they are not functioning as trees anymore. They are just like these ashen structures. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no one really goes to the park though because it's desolate and depressing. Uh, Archer tells Rin that the park gives him bad vibes, like a reality marble. Uh, understanding that the audience would have no idea what Archer is talking about, Rin's inner monologue helpfully explains them. There is a technique mages can use called a boundary field, which is basically a magic barrier that encloses a physical space. Reality marbles are basically an upgrade version of a boundary field. Instead of simply enclosing a space, they can completely remake the reality of the enclosed space into whatever the Magus wants. Uh, Rin is also surprised that Archer has any idea what a reality marble is, because, yeah, like... Yeah, because he's not they, a caster servant. He shouldn't know this. It, the, and this is, like, not just, like, uh, uh, a thing caster... or only a caster servant should know. This is shit that, like, a lot of Magus's don't know. This is, like... Real ass, real ass, significant shit. It is basically the closest that Magecraft gets to sorcery. Yeah, it is an extremely powerful ability. Um, um uh, I, I think it's also worth talking about uh, the structure of Fuyuki City. Um, it is divided into a couple of different sectors. Um, you have the old, por- you have the old and new portions of Fuyuki City. Um, and then the old portion of Fuyuki City is also divided between uh, classic Japanese-style uh, homes and Western-style homes. Yeah, um, Rin from is we- explicitly called out as living in a Western-style home. Mm-hmm. Um, like a and, mansion, basically. Yeah, they, it, I think they explicitly use the term uh, mansion. Uh, most of the yeah. Western-style homes are from something like 200 years ago or something. Um but most of the foreigners have ended up leaving by this point. Uh, and so the thing left behind is mostly just the homes. Um, and so you even have this city that is uh, uh, fractured and divided in this way with like really clean and clear divisions. Um, yeah. Uh, Rin and Archer's reverie is interrupted when Rin feels a painful sensation in her right arm, indicating another master is somewhere nearby watching them. They can't see who it is, though, so they continue their scouting mission and eventually end up on the roof of the tallest building in town. Rin senses someone she knows, who she does not name, looking up at her, someone who isn't a master. She reasons, though, that he was simply looking up at the building by coincidence, since it would be impossible to actually see her from the ground. Surely, there's definitely no significance to this at all. Oh, this is dull as hell. With their scouting mission a bust, they head back to Rin's house. Along the way, they notice Sakura, um, who I forgot we hadn't mentioned yet. Uh, Sakura is a girl with uh, purple hair who will be more important in in the future. Summaries will do. She's Um, a member of the archery club. Um, She is uh, Shinji's sister. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, she is Shinji Matoi's sister. They notice mm-hmm. Sakura. <laughs> pour one out for Sakura. 
Uh, they notice Sakura <laughs> heading down the street toward them and talking to an unfamiliar foreigner with blonde hair. Uh, this guy has a very... Um, I'm trying to describe what he looks like. He's got a very Belial from Grand Blue facial expression. He does have a Belial look. Like, my man looks fucky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll find he, out he, how fucky later. <laughs> he, he does look very fucky. Um, uh, they hide and let them pass, and Archer concludes that the stranger is near, is neither a servant nor a master, so it probably doesn't concern them. Uh, meanwhile, we are laughing. Um, back at home, <laughs> Rin calls Kyrie on the phone to let him know that she's got a servant now, and then immediately hangs up so she doesn't have to listen to one of his lectures. She then goes to sleep. Uh, I, I love that this is our first hint of, like, how, how Rin feels about Kyrie, and honestly, from what we eventually find later, I think that's pretty fair. I think that's maybe more kind than Kyrie deserves. <laughs> yeah. That dude a uh, bitch. Yeah. Uh, the next day, Rin decides to go to school since there is only one other family of magi in the town. The only one capable of uh, uh, the only one capable of being a master declined the invite to the war. Um, Archer asks her if she's sure she'll be safe, and Rin replies that while the other magus does have a have a successor, they don't have enough magical energy to become a master at all. Plus, masters from outside the town would be reluctant to attack during school on account of how many witnesses there would be. Mm-hmm. Even still, Rin tells Archer to accompany her, her to school in his spirit form, making him invisible to everyone except her, which Archer is happy to do. Um, <clears throat> uh, as soon as they pass through the school gate, they sense a boundary field has been placed over the school grounds. During school, Rin has a brief encounter with Sakura and asks her about the man she was with last night. Sakura assures Rin that he was just a stranger who seemed to be lost, but she couldn't make out anything he was saying. Uh, Though, um, that is what she says, uh, but the framing of it uh, indicates that she may not be telling the whole truth. Um, Later, Rin and Archer investigate the source of the boundary field, a magic marking drawn on a rooftop. Uh, on the roof, t- rooftop of the school, I should say. Um, Rin discovers that the objective of this field is to dissolve anyone within it and claim their souls. While magi can't use souls for anything, servants can use them for sustenance, suggesting a magus intends to slaughter the, slaughter the school to gain a boost in power for their servant. Rin can't permanently remove the field, but she can sap enough of its power to force whoever set it up to reactivate it. But she's interrupted by the arrival of an enemy servant, Lancer. Uh, Do you want to say anything about this before we get into Lancer's deal? No, um, I think that is like, that's all pretty straightforward. This is a lot of establishing mechanics for how this this stuff works. Um, It is important uh, uh, that... Uh, Rin basically straight up says, like, yeah, souls are useless for mages. We can't do fucking anything with them, so nobody bothers, like, investigating them or doing anything with them because it's just literally impossible to do anything with them. Yeah. A lot of exposition here, but also that's sort of what Rin's... This kind of, like, partly what why the prologue chapter exists with Rin, because Rin is familiar with all this magic nonsense. So Mm -hmm. she is... She provides us with the framework with which we can then understand, 
you know, the actual, like, main story. Um, anyway, uh, Lancer attempts to... I should probably describe Lancer. Uh, Lancer is a fuckboy. Ah, hmm, hmm, So, here's the thing. You're not wrong. I would still fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> this is just going to be true of a, a, a lot of these. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Nasu is one of the few people who can write hot dudes. Mm. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I, um, I mean, we. I think we can also just say who Lancers is. Like, we find that out during these three days. Yeah, they never explicitly say it, but like uh, oh, Saber, Saber figures says it. it out. Saber Saber says it. If you know anything oh, about, okay. she calls him Ireland's Man of Light. Um, if you know anything about Irish mythology, you are almost certainly aware uh, that that is likely a reference to uh, Kukum. Yeah. So. Uh, it, th- that and the fact that his weapon is called Gay Bolg. Um, yeah, we figure that out later uh, when he uses it. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, we do find out that he is Kukulin. Um He's got like a, a skin-tight blue outfit with like, uh, um, I think it's uh, white tracings on it. Yep. Um, uh, and he's got a big old red spear. And it, it is sick. It's fucking tight, is the thing. Yeah, uh, Lancer's design is is really good. Like, honestly, I, I like all the servant designs. Um, trying to in think. Face uh, Assassin might be a weak link, but that might be it. Oh, yeah, Assassin is kind of forgettable, but it's so forgettable I forgot Assassin was in this. But Yes, uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, uh, Lancer's is, like, uh, pretty simple, but very striking, uh, easily, you know, easily memorable. Really good. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also got, like, a, a really unique hairstyle as well. It's like this... It, it's like, what if Guile had a rat tail? He does kind of have a Guile rat tail. Mm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Lancer attempts to kill Rin immediately, but she uses her magic crest to enhance her body leaping over the roof's fence and escaping at superhuman speed to a spot of open school ground. Now that they're in a better environment for a battle, Archer comes out with a short sword to face Lancer. At first, Lancer appears to have an edge, but Archer eventually reveals he can make seemingly endless copies of his sword, replacing him, replacing them whenever Lancer disarms him. Uh, this is explicitly this is a- pointed out as being <laughs> something that probably shouldn't be happening. Right. So uh, the thing about servants is not only are they like super powerful, basically monsters because they are souls given or souls of myth myths given flesh. Um, they also have access to what is called the noble phantasm, which is yeah. a tool or weapon based on their legend that has access to like significant power because of those legends. Um, noble phantasms are irreplicable and, uh, uh non like irreplaceable um so the idea that somebody could replace their weapon theoretically endlessly doesn't make sense unless they are not using their noble phantasm yeah and that's what sort of freaks lancer out because he realizes that archer is holding his own against him uh not even using a bow which is what archers are supposed to be good at but using swords, which are notoriously terrible at fighting lances, and it's not even his signature weapon. He does have two of them, and it is sick, though. That, yeah, that part it, is tight. It is real sick. It's also, like, uh, got yin-yang symbology on it as well, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, Archer's kind of tight. Yeah, Archer rules. <laughs> uh, uh, 
but yeah, also, the, I believe it comes up here. Um, one of the reasons why knowing a servant's identity, like their true identity, is important is uh, because these are heroes like that are known in, in you know, public myth. Uh, if you can figure out what a servant's name is, you can get a pretty good idea of not only what they are good at, but what their noble phantasm is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we mentioned this either. Uh Rin and Archer do not know uh, Archer's identity. Oh, right, yeah, because Archer doesn't know who he is. Be- because Rin, quote-unquote, fucked up the ritual, uh, he says he cannot remember who he is, and so he doesn't know what, her- er, what hero he is a spirit of um, or what his noble phantasm is. Yeah. Um, which is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh. So, uh, realizing he's likely outmatched, Lancer begins to activate his noble phantasm. Rin doesn't know what it is, but she immediately knows in her gut that Aunt, that Archer's heart will be pierced once Lancer mm-hmm. attacks again, and he will die unavoidably. It's so fucking cool, dude! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gavolg might be the sickest uh, noble phantasm. It's, it, 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 it's pretty good. Um... However, at the last moment, their battle is interrupted by a student asking, Who's there? Lancer immediately stops his attack and vanishes. Rin realizes that he's going uh, to kill the witness and it, orders Archer to follow. It, uh, it's actually Lancer that says, Who's there? Um, he, he, Lancer hears something and says, Who's there? And then oh. moves. Uh, I'm, I'm almost certain it's the person we will be talking about that uh, shouts, Who's there? No, because we have the whole scene where he is uh, sitting in there terrified, and then he starts to breathe again, uh, and that is what lets Kukulin hear him. Okay, I, I, I thought he, like, shouted something. No, that's, he was sitting there terrified. Okay, alright. Uh, Lancer immediately stops his attack and vanishes. Rin realizes that he's going to kill the witness and orders, orders Archer to follow. However, it's too late. Lancer has already attacked the boy and escaped. While he's not dead yet, he will die very soon, because, you know, his heart was pierced. Um, Rin discovers with horror that she recognizes him, but does not reveal who he is to the audience. Seemingly out of guilt, Rin makes a spur-of-the-moment decision to use the pendant her dad left her to power a healing spell, bringing the boy back from the brink of death. So she basically uses this, like, pendant that has ten years' worth of her mana stored up, to save this boy, who she really should be letting die, because that is what she is supposed to do. Yeah, like, it, she is not supposed to let this boy live. Like, yeah. if anything, she should be putting him out of his misery right now. Yeah. Uh, but she just can't bring herself to be a good Magus. Um, she then retreats to the safety of her mansion, leaving the pendant behind. Archer eventually meets her there and informs her that he was unable to locate Lancer's master. Archer asks Rin what she will wish upon the Holy Grail for once she wins the war and is shocked to learn that Rin has no wish. She's just fighting to win. Rin's so fucking stupid. She rules. (laughs) She's like, there's a fight and I want to be there because I want to be number one, baby. Rin is... One of my favorite characters in the Rin is here for the fucking trophy. She does not care about the prize. She just wants that ring. Yeah. Uh, Archer reveals he recovered her pendant from where she left it, figuring it probably had some emotional significance. 
This causes Rin to think about the witness again, and she slowly realizes that once Lancer's master finds out that he survived, he'll definitely become a target for Lancer again. Rin and Archer rush over to the witness's house, but they sense Lancer has already arrived. Archer is about to intervene when they suddenly sense a new wave of power caused by the summoning of a new servant. They see, An they see Lancer flee, and Archer is immediately attacked by the new servant. Rin barely has enough time to use a command spell to vanish Archer, preventing him from being killed. However, now Rin is defenseless against the new servant, and her spells appear to have no effect. Rin is forced to the ground, and the servant places her sword to Rin's neck, ready to strike a killing blow. As Rin accepts her death, she realizes that this new servant is the most powerful of them all, the one she had attempted to summon. Saber. Game over. <laughs> Yep, and that's the end of the game. Uh, and yeah. so next week we'll be talking about uh, Fate Hollow Ataraxia. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess uh, Hollow Ataraxia is next. Um, yeah. Uh, no, so that's the end of the prologue here. Um, so yeah, what, what what do you think of the prologue so far? I liked it a lot, actually. Um, yeah, same. Which is not what I was expecting, because I remember back when I first tried Fate Stay Night, I remember it being very wordy and, like, sort of, I tapped out pretty early on. Um, but now that I sort of forced myself to read through it, like, after I got over that initial um, bit of, you know... Um, oh, it's a book-ass book? ...to just, just write too much. Like, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, um, it, it does sometimes feel like Nasu could use an editor. Um, but there is a lot of interesting things here. Yeah, and, like, I liked the dialogue a lot more than I thought I would. Like, Rin and Archer mm -hmm. have fantastic chemistry. Yeah, they're very fun to watch. Um, oh. go ahead. All right, uh, so, yeah, let's start day one. Um, and day one, uh, starts with a, uh, with a little poem of sorts. Yeah, uh, let me... Perhaps the most famous uh, of all of these little uh, poems in the Fate franchise. Uh, okay, so I believe this is the one that we see at the beginning. Um, and it is, I am the bone of my sword. Steel is my body and fire is my blood. I have created over a thousand blades, unknown to death nor known to life. Have withstood the pain to create many weapons, yet those hands will never hold anything. So as I pray, unlimited blade works. I love it so much. It's real good. It's so good. It's so uh, fucking good, dude. It whiffs. Uh, it also ties... Uh, we'll, we'll find out like more about why that is meaningful um, when we get eventually to the Unlimited Blade Works uh, route, but mm -hmm. it already, like, some verses in it already tie into what we are saying about um, magic turning you into a tool. I mean, yeah, like, parts of this literally describe how, uh, or are very similar to how um, Rin describes being used by, like, the first two uh, lines sound very similar to how Rin describes using magic. Yeah. Uh, so, upon starting a new game, we are greeted with a first-person flashback from a survivor of the huge fire that happened ten years ago when the previous Holy Grail War ended. This survivor lost his parents and his home, but he was taken in by a magus named Emiya Kiritsugu, who becomes his adoptive father. We are now in control of Emiya Shiro as he's being woken up by Sakura Mato, and we will be in uh, from Shiro's perspective for the entire rest of the game. 
Yep, uh, Rin died, so now we're playing as Shiro. <laughs> Rin, that, that's not true. Um, uh, uh, so th- this game does give dates. Um, it, this is the same day as the beginning of the prologue. Yeah. Um, yeah, these these uh, first three days happen roughly... Uh, well, actually, yeah. Yeah, roughly concurrently. They, um, they are the same three days from two different people's perspectives. Yep. Uh, which is pretty neat, as we mm-hmm. will see in a moment. Um, Shiro apologizes for sleeping too late, which love that mirror image. Uh, Shiro uh, sleeps too late on accident um, pretty frequently, whereas Rin cannot cannot sleep too late even on accident. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, this forces Sakura to do all the cooking. Uh, Shiro feels bad about this, but Sakura tells him she actually kind of likes waking him up because she is very obviously a love interest and uh, definitely spends her time writing their names inside little hearts in her journal. <laughs> so Sakura's like a little bit charming. Like, it's just like, oh, honey, you got it bad, huh? <laughs> yeah. Honey. Uh, she wants him real bad. Uh, Sakura eventually leaves to go make breakfast. Um, there are, like, some small branches here and there. Largely speaking, um, we're not going to really cover the branches that lead to dead ends, um, because why would we? Uh, so, um, if, if there's, there's occasionally some interesting details, but, like, by and large, we'll probably skip them. Yeah, my synopsises will be a little biased because they'll only cover whatever, you know, diversion I took. Uh, to get mm-hmm. to the next main branch, but yeah. Uh, while Shiro changes into his school clothes, he tells us a little bit about himself. Kuritsugu died five years ago, leaving Shiro with a pretty nice house. This is more like a Japanese-style, you know, big house as compared to Rin's Western-style big-ass house. Uh, the property also came with a warehouse that Shiro uses to store the junk he likes to collect and repair. His father tried to teach him magic, uh, well, actually, I think I got this wrong. I actually, um, because I initially interpreted as his father tried to teach his magic, but I think later on, Shiro explicitly says, uh, Kurisugu never bothered trying to teach him magic, and he tried to figure it out himself. So, so the way it works is, uh, for a long time, Kurisugu did not want to teach him magic, um, and eventually he buckled, but rather than, like, actually teaching him anything, uh, Kurisugu taught him, like, the absolute bare minimum basics, and then died. Um, okay. So Kiritsugu never actually taught him anything beyond, like, the absolute 100% bare, bare minimum, uh, bare basic concepts. And, like, even that, Shiro kind of had to learn on his own by trial and error. Yeah, Shiro mentions here that he's not particularly good at magic. Um, In fact, uh, he's very bad at magic. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Uh, if, uh, if you're playing the game like me, the next thing Shiro does is complete his morning, morning ru- workout routine. He then heads back inside the house to join his caretaker, Taiga Fujimura, one of the best characters in the game, uh, at I the table just Taiga. in time for Sakura to serve breakfast. I love her. She is a gremlin. She is such an asshole. I love her so much. <laughs> Uh, as he eats, Shiro and Sakura make small talk. Sakura tells him that even though Shiro isn't part of the archery club anymore, uh, Mitsuzuri uh, still sees him as a rival and is determined to be a better archer than him, which tells us a little something about Shiro that may or may not be relevant. Uh, and Shiro's uh, also kind of like, uh, okay, like I, I don't even go there anymore, but like, sure, I guess. 
Yeah, Shiro's very unfazed by all this. Uh, meanwhile, Shiro reflects on how he started to take more notice of Sakura's body, and that it feels a little wrong to be getting horny for his friend's sister at breakfast. Friend is uh, also a strong word for describing um, his relationship with Shinji as well. Yeah, he, he calls Shinji a friend, but... Mm. He, he calls Shinji a friend in the same way that, like, that kid you grew up with uh, for, like, ten years is, like, technically a friend because you don't have a better word to describe. Man, I want to beat the shit out of that dude because he sucks, but, like, yeah. we've known each other for ten years and I don't really have a way to end that relationship. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, the breakfast is interrupted when Shiro takes a sip of what he thinks is yam soup, but it turns out to be oyster sauce. Uh, Fujimura proudly reveals that she, sw- she had swapped the labels in secret purely to get back at Shiro for calling her by the nickname she hates. <laughs> at, at school, yeah, because she is his teacher, and yeah. Shiro's an asshole. <laughs> uh on the news, there's a report of multiple people falling unconscious due to a gas leak that deprived them of oxygen, or that's what the official reports say. Uh, Shiro <laughs> thinks that this has been happening often re- lately, possibly due to poor construction standards when the t- town was rapidly rebuilding. Um, I actually don't know if this is, if that's the real story or not, because uh, there are some details I cannot remember, and also I never actually... Uh, watched the Studio Dean adaptation of the Fate Route, so um, maybe that is real, and that's what actually I mean, happening. But we, we have reason to not. suspect it's not because yeah. we know uh, uh, because Rin. Uh, so uh, one thing that we actually probably did not cover that we should have about the boundary field that Rin uh, and Archer encounter at the school on day three of the prologue is it is designed to kill everybody at the school and turn them into souls that. Uh, a servant can eat. Oh yeah, um, I did mention that. Yeah. Oh yes, you did. You're right. Uh, I apologize. Um, but That's yeah, okay. like, it, it is a reasonable assumption to think that might be what this is for. Yeah, this is happening in other areas. Yeah, especially since the, especially since um, Rin does mention, like, she is one of the last people to get a servant. So presumably there are other Maguses out there doing shit already and getting Yeah, there's at least five. Actual war. Um, but yeah. Uh, Shiro heads to school and meets up with Issei, who asks him if he can fix some old electric heaters. Uh, Shiro fixes it, aided by the one magic ability he's good at, scanning the structure of an object, visualizing it, and reproducing it. However, uh, Kuritsugu always told him developing this skill was a wasted effort, because a mage fights by reading the core of a thing instantly and then changing that core as quickly as possible. So why would you bother trying to understand the structure when you could just bypass it? Uh, I think this is an important thing to talk about here, too, um... So Emiya is garbage at magic. He is garbage at magic. The thing he is good at is understanding, visualizing, understanding systems and structures that is fundamentally useless. Um, and we have this immediate dichotomy between um, uh, Emiya, or between Rin, who is a prodigy at magic, who immediately realizes magic is basically useless and in no way can use it to ever help people, and Emiya, who is garbage at magic um and his magic is bad at doing the thing magic is supposed to be for and instead uh is a thing that is actively useful for For helping people for helping people for like understanding the world for helping people for making a material and immediate benefit uh and also as a means of amplifying uh the labor he is willing to put in in the first place yeah Um, Uh, but it's 
Yeah, I just th- this emphasizes like because at first you wonder like why does the prologue exist if we're just gonna read through the same stuff, you know, same basic events anyway. But like the more you delve into like the the, th- the themes of this and what this story is about, it's like oh yeah, they are meant to be contrasting each other as a way of like showing mm-hmm. us sort of how like what this world is like and and where the conflict exists. Um, um, Rin also, like, when Shiro was introduced in her prologue, uh, it was to describe Shiro as someone who looks at home holding a wrench, uh, and Tosaka uh, couldn't dis- decide if that was, uh, useful or scary, and, like, that, <laughs> that as the immediate descriptor of Shiro, as a person, uh, not holding a weapon, but holding a tool, and a person whose ability is understanding systems and structures and being able to fix them um, in a story that is about systems and structures that, that are weaponize people towards <laughs> violence. Um, yeah, you know, I wonder if that's relevant in any way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after fixing the heater, Shiro heads back into the hallway where he sees Issei having a conversation with Rin, which we previously experienced in the prologue. Shiro thinks about how pretty much all the guys, including himself, himself admire Rin because she appears to be an ideal woman. Which, of course, which we understand God. is not the case. At least he doesn't <laughs> think so. Shiro's stupid and goes basically girl hot. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, Shiro then goes to his homeroom seat where he... Which is where we uh, meet that slimy motherfucker Shinji again. Uh, Shinji is Sakura's old uh, Sakura's brother, which might explain why Sakura spends so much time at Shiro's house instead. Uh, I would <laughs> fucking move out if he was my older brother. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Shiro tries to make polite small talk and asks if the archery club is going well, but Shinji acts offended that Shiro would imply it wouldn't be going well, and that an outsider like him should just shut up to avoid embarrassing himself. Shiro tries to drop the subject, which causes Shinji to ask Shiro why he wouldn't be interested in the archery club, because Shinji desperately wants someone, anyone, to tell him he's cool and special. Uh, Yeah, he's like, Shinji can't decide between needling Shiro and, like, uh, trying to be, like, Shinji is clearly conflicted about what his relationship with Shiro is, and can't decide between, like, needling him and like wanting shiro to and wanting shiro's like to approval. validate him <laughs> yeah. yeah his validation um shiro ends the conversation as gr- gracefully as he can and isei comes by to tell shiro that he's surprised that shiro did didn't just fucking deck shinji <laughs> which at, at first it's like so that at first that comment by Issei confused me because up until like this you know so far of what we know by from Shiro he seems to be a pretty calm dude we will get context for this later on so I kind of don't want to talk about it yet but yeah uh, I do like how they set this up um Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly their homeroom teacher arrives turns out it's Fujimura who's running late as usual immediately upon entering the classroom she passes out and hits her hand on the teaching platform Everyone in the class calls her Tiger to wake her up because she hates it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shiro thinks that it's her own fault that people call her Tiger due to how unfeminine she acts because... Uh, come on, fucking Shinji. Wait, Shiro? That's Shinji. Sh- Shiro, Shiro, don't stop, be whack. Stop, stop, being gen- stop doing gender stuff, Shiro. Um, uh, 
After school, I chose to have Shiro help the student council some more instead of going to do his job. Uh, Issei expresses his worry. I actually like this because we get some good Issei content. Um, Mm -hmm. Issei expresses his worry that Shiro is too willing to help people out and that he doesn't want to see people take advantage of Shiro. Mm -hmm. Um, It it gives us this really, really uh, nice side to Issei that we didn't get to see in Rin's Rin's storyline because Rin doesn't really spend time around people. Um, But Issei isn't just like the typical stick in the mud student student body president, like he gives a shit, um, mm-hmm. and specifically he he gives a shit about Shiro because he knows Shiro is a good person, and he also know that knows that Shiro is kind of a pushover. Also, that Shiro is stupid as shit and is willing to hurt himself for other people. Like, yeah, but like he makes it pretty clear that like he doesn't think Shiro will protect himself in cases where it's like. Oh yeah, between Shiro getting hurt and uh, 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 helping somebody else, like Shiro is pretty much always going to help somebody else, and it's like. And Issei is a hundred percent right about that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. On his way back home at night, Shiro encounters a mysterious young girl with white hair who tells him, "You'll die if you don't summon it soon, Onishan." At home, which isn't ominous at all. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's just a, it's just a, a tiny, creepy girl. I love the first episode of Evangelion. <laughs> uh, at home, Sakura serves Shiro dinner, and he praises how good she's become at making Japanese dishes. Um, at night, b- before he goes to bed, Shiro does his magical training. Again, we've got a parallel between him um, and Rin. Mm-hmm. Uh, powerful magi perform spells by transforming their body into a filter for magical energy uh, that they extract from their surroundings. The number of magical circuits someone has is determined at birth, and more magical circuits mean a higher magical potential. Magical circuits can be passed down by blood, and some magi families even practice selective breeding to increase the number of circuits their bloodline has. Since Shiro has very little innate capacity for magic, he creates an artificial circuit inside his backbone, a potentially lethal technique that requires strict concentration over a period of one hour. Um, The wording on this is really good. You might have it written down, but uh, Shiro describes it like putting a molten hot rod of metal inside his back. Uh, the exact quote is, for instance, at this moment, I am inserting a burning steel rod into my back to bone. This is the only magic circuit I can create. When I insert this deep into my body and connect it to my other nerves, I can finally become a magus. Um, and one thing I think is important to mention, too, is uh, uh, the thing accumulated generationally is not just magic circuits, um, but also what is called the magic crest, which is like a collection of spells and uh, uh ways of doing magic that is collected familially um, and passed down through a magic tattoo that often also contains the magic circuits. Ah, uh, right, yeah. Uh, Rin mentions her magic crest occasionally um, during her prologue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to mention, because it is important that uh, uh, the, thing collected, the things collected generationally are not just, like, active power, but also knowledge. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. Um... Once the circuit is in place, Shiro can use one spell, uh, Object Strengthening, that he activates by saying, Trace On, which 
is a lovely bit of English. It fucking rules, dude. It's so good. Yeah, I legitimately love Trace On. Trace On rules. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, and it's like, it's barely even a spell that he does. Like, like compared to Rin, who is doing, like, full-on wizard shit, like, it feels like he's going halfway. Like, doing half of a spell. Yeah, he specifically, like, um, he describes it similar to, like, uh, taking an already existing thing and, like, filling it with more stuff to just make it stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he, he's not even creating, uh, well, he, he can also replicate things, um, but, uh, they have no substance to them. Yeah, they're basically just, like, hollow styrofoam versions of a thing. Yeah. Like, like um, they look the same, but the inside is literally hollow. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know why it would be relevant that Shiro struggles to create an interiority of a thing. Um, <laughs> a, a, an interiority of a tool. Uh, uh, themes are for 8th grade book reports. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, day two... Um, we start on day two. Uh, during his sleep, Shiro explains what he heard about the magic association from Kuritsugu. Uh, Supposedly, the association is only concerned about concealing magic from the world, but they don't care about how it's used. Uh, which basically means that you can do whatever the fuck you want to, to, to like, the citizenry, like, do whatever experiments you want to. Just, don't uh, just as long as it doesn't reveal magic to anybody else. Uh, before that, Shiro does talk about uh, one of the only two things he ever dreams about, um, which is swords. Yeah. Sh- Shiro only dreams of two things. One is the nightmare of uh, what happened the day he was rescued by Kiritsugu Emiya, or swords. <laughs> which, yeah, yeah, man, all right, all right. Teen boys you, love you swords. Okay? Clearly, uh, I mean, well, there's, there's really nothing more to it than that. Teen boys do love swords. Uh, swords are fucking sick. I am not going to disagree. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, the, the Mage Association is fucking evil. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, this is, like, the most explicit. Like, if you didn't figure it out from Rin's talking about what their deal is, like, you, you can't avoid it here. Mm-hmm. Um, Shiro wakes up early this time, makes breakfast, and then heads to the dojo to train. Um, one of the things I like is that Shiro is, like, legitimately really good at cooking. Yeah, Shiro's, like, great at cooking. Uh, Sakura is a little better than him at, um, uh, Japanese cooking, I think she said? Or is she better at Western cooking? She's better at Western cooking. Like, uh, Shiro is teaching her how to be better at Japanese cooking. Right, and she's almost as good at him at, uh, Japanese cooking now, but, uh, he is, like, legitimately good at cooking. Yeah, and Um, it's one of the few, one of the things he, like, really enjoys doing. mm Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, and, like, uh, when he go- talks about going to the dojo, uh, it kind of emphasizes uh, Shiro, like, everything about how Shiro moves about through life right now is aimless. Like, he feels like he is moving by routine more than, like, any actual objective or goal. than any- yeah. Like, he is moving via momentum more than anything else. Yeah, Rin has an objective that was basically given to her from birth. Shiro does mm-hmm. not have that. No, Shiro was like, I guess I'm supposed to train because that's what I'm supposed to do, and I guess I'll just keep doing that. Yeah. Um, 
At breakfast, Shiro notices a bruise on Sakura's wrist and assumes that Shiro mm-hmm. caused it. Sakura claims she just fell, but Shiro doesn't buy it. He thinks back to a year ago when he first noticed Shinji's behavior towards Sakura. Shiro confronted him about it, and Shinji said he hit Sakura just because he felt like it. This, yes. understandably, mm-hmm. caused Shiro to beat the hell out of Shinji. However, yeah. uh-huh. he now blames himself for Shinji treating Sakura even worse. Yep. Um, and that's part of, like, where the tension between uh, uh, Shinji and Shiro is. Like, Shiro clearly thinks Shinji is a scumfuck who deserves to die. Um, but any tension he causes is clearly going to make uh, the situation worse for Sakura. Yeah, yeah, because Shinji like, will just take it out on her because she is the easiest one for him to unleash his feelings upon. Mm-hmm. And so Shiro is in, like, this really uncomfortable position, especially because Sakura, like, refuses to acknowledge that her brother is the one doing anything. Um it, in part, it seems like because she doesn't want her to beat the shit out of uh, Shinji again. Yeah. Um, Sakura's... Oh, I, this poor girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, she'll have an entire route devoted to her. Uh, yeah, but, and I'm yeah. sure I will think sh- nothing is bad again has happened to her there. And it'll all be fine. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, like, uh, Shiro is... A person who's like, yeah, I want to be a superhero or a hero of justice, depending on the translation. Um, and, like, the first chance he has, he ta- or tries to take that action, and it, it immediately backfires. does not work. It, yeah. it, like, it not only does not work, it, like, fundamentally fails and makes things worse. And, like, makes it clear, like, hey, this is, like, kind of a juvenile fantasy and, like, is not enough. Yeah. Um, Sakura asks... Uh, Sakura asks uh, Shiro if Shinji is the reason he quit the archery club. Um, Shiro explains that there was simply an accident at his job a year and a half ago. A shipment of hazardous material fell on his right shoulder, burning his skin. Formal archery dictates, dictates that men expose their right shoulder when they shoot. Shinji thought it would be indecent for someone to reveal a scar during formal shooting, so Shiro took that as an excuse to quit, since he was already getting busy with work. Um, Shiro, this is complex because, again, we're getting this from Shiro's perspective, so it is not necessarily reliable. Um, so this is what Shiro says, but there is an undercurrent of, like, um, Shiro would probably would have continued with archery if Shinji hadn't purposely been a dick to him and Shiro because he doesn't have a good way to interact with Shinji without like stepping on eggshells to try and make things worse just chooses to avoid him whenever possible yeah Mm -hmm. and and like it it's like this weird holding pattern that he's in because like Sakura is unwilling to acknowledge it and him directly confronting Shinji didn't work and so like there is nothing he can do at yeah. this point, he and so his really solution have is any good avoid options. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, on the way to school, Shiro notices several police cars parked outside a house, but he's too busy to investigate. Um, Mitsuzuri greets him at school. She complains to Shiro about Shinji's behavior, saying that Shinji recently publicly humiliated a new a new club member uh, by basically forcing him to. Uh, try and take a skilled archery shot in front of a bunch of girls to, like, 
you know, deliberately cause him to leave the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Shinji is like, wow, that's like a lot even for him. Um, that that seems extreme. Oh, uh, you mean Shiro? Uh, yeah, sorry, Shiro, not Shinji. Yeah. I do this. I do. Look, I get it. <laughs> I did the same mm-hmm. thing earlier. Um, at lunchtime, Issei reveals what was up with the cop cars. A family of four was murdered with a sword-like weapon, leaving the youngest child as the only survivor. Um, after school, Shiro heads to the dojo to try and intervene uh, if Shinji... Oh, I, sorry, I skip over some stuff here. Because at some point, um, like I think it's Issei mentions that uh, Rin had a run-in with Shinji. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Shiro's like, oh... If Rin insulted him, Shinji's gonna want to get revenge, and I should be a hero and prevent that from happening. He's, like, immediately, like, uh, yeah, well, it's not even just, like, I should be a hero and prevent that from happening. Like, he goes, uh, uh, yeah, Shinji seems like the type of dude who would absolutely be fucking gross, and Rin seems like the type of person who would absolutely tell him in no uncertain terms to fuck off, uh, and that's going to make things bad for everybody. Like, it is not like a, oh, I'm going to save the woman, so much as it is like a, oh, I, I need to make sure this does not explode because of both of them being the person they are. Yeah. Um, so after school, Shiro heads to the dojo to try and intervene if Shindy tries to attack Rin for rejecting him. But no one is there except Issei, because Issei knew exactly what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Issei warns Shiro to be wary of Rin in the weirdest possible way. Uh, I... Issei has an interesting perspective on Rin that is not necessarily wrong. Issei basically is like, yeah, Rin is so perfect that it's clear, like, she is full of shit and no one knows fucking anything about her. I don't trust her and she is dangerous. Um, And But at the same time, he kind of has a respect for her, but it's like a respect you might have for a particularly deadly cobra. Yeah. Uh, He's also like talking shit about her behind her back and yeah. uh Shiro basically goes oh my god man please don't talk shit behind people's back and Issei basically goes fucking who's saying shit behind anyone's back I hope she hears fucking let her come yeah. and Shiro goes oh my god please restrict yourself to just talking shit behind her back oh my god please don't let her hear Issei's so good <laughs> Issei's such an idiot I love him uh uh, Shiro doesn't want to start his, uh, sorry, Shiro doesn't start his part-time job until later, so he buys his time at the creepy park that, you know, never got re- rebuilt. Um, he thinks to himself about all the people who died there trying to save someone else. Um, the thought of those sacrifices make him mad, and he asks himself if it's greedy to want an ending where everyone is safe and happy. He thinks back to when Karitsugu once told him that a superhero can only save the people he has saved. A superhero is someone who must decide who gets to be saved. The uh, uh, One of the phrases that gets thrown around, around a lot is the quote, uh, saving one person means not saving another. Um, and like, this is some people die when they are killed ass shit. Yeah. Um, but what this is basically getting at here is... Um, the concept of saving one person from another person fundamentally means that, like, there is a person here not being saved because it is including the perpetrator of that violence as a person to consider being worth saving. And, like, Emiya's issue 
is not like, oh, I want to save everybody who's being threatened by bad people. It's, I want to save everybody who's being threatened by quote-unquote bad people, and also those people doing the threatening. Like, yeah. He, he wants, when he says he wants to save everyone, he, he means, means literally he everyone. wants to ever save everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, Amia is our anti-cursorial justice king. <laughs> Uh, he Amia just wants to bring everybody together, you know? Justice. Yeah. Except for, for Shinji, that bitch can die. Yeah. Uh, after work, Shiro is gazing up at the buildings as he walks home. Suddenly, he notices Rin standing on one of the rooftops and wonders why she's up there all alone, looking down at the town. Uh, he does make it clear he enhances his vision uh, with magic. Yeah. And that's the sole reason he can actually make out that it's her. Yeah. <laughs> uh which i love because again um rin we learn in a pro in the prologue assumes she knows like who everyone in the town who is capable of magic is um and like shiro has deliberately kept it a secret that he cannot use magic even from other mages because like the mage association were to find out that he can do magic that would be bad times for him um so he, yeah, he, he's no one basically knows. an unregistered magic user. Yeah. Uh, back at home, Shiro has dinner with Fujimura, who gives him a military recruiting poster she found that is, for some reason, made out of a steel plate. Yeah, I didn't really get why it was made out of a steel... why it's got, like, steel plates on it. Um, it it's mostly for the next scene. Um, but yeah, fuck it, man. Yeah, yeah. sure. All right. I love that Fujimura is just someone who's like, hey, Shiro, look at this weird shit I found. And Shiro's like, what I don't want to keep do it with this. I just love that she's like, yeah, I don't want it, but I want you to have it so that I can have given it to you. Um, yeah, here you go. <laughs> God, she's such a, such a dick. I love her. I love Fujimura so much. Uh, she sucks. Uh, day three, uh, Shiro wakes up from a nightmare about the fire. Shock of shocks. Uh, as he and Sakura head to school, Sakura notices uh, that Shiro's hand is bleeding. Shiro investigates and he finds that there is a welt running from his shoulder down to his hand that looks like a small snake. However, it doesn't hurt, so Shiro tells Sakura not to worry about it. Yeah, Shiro has basically the same reaction to being suddenly bleeding that I do, which is like a, huh, oh, that's weird, oh, it doesn't hurt, so it's fine. Yeah, it'll, it'll heal, it's, it's okay. It's whatever. <laughs> uh, while things at the school appear normal, Shiro can't help but feel like something is wrong. When he closes his eyes, the buildings become covered in member membranous stains, and the students appear like dolls. Uh, if you remember from the prologue, day three is when Rin discovers that a boundary field had been placed. Uh, yeah. Shiro bumps into Shinji in the school hallways, and Shinji tells him how much he hates that Shiro is a goody-goody. Uh, Shiro brushes his comments off, which briefly angers Shinji. However, Shinji then asks Shiro to do some chores, fixing bowstrings at the club. Uh, in, in an event that is exactly what Issei was worried about, Shiro agrees and helps out in the empty club room until well past curfew. Yeah, um, basically Issei, or not Issei, uh, Shinji passes off all of his work, um, that was supposed to be him doing it, uh, onto Shiro. Yeah, just to be a dick, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because he knows that Shiro won't refuse. Um, uh, Shiro hears the sound of fighting 
goes to investigate and stumbles upon Archer and Lancer's battle. Um, when Lancer begins activating his noble phantasm, Shiro senses Lancer sucking in an excessive amount of magic from the environment, to the point where uh, as Shiro notes that other, even other mages would find it like disturbingly excessive. Mm-hmm. Um, Shiro instinctively understands, much like Rin did, that Archer is about to die, uh, and intervenes. Um, uh, however, L- Lancer obviously notices him, uh, and immediately starts chasing. Um, Shiro escapes back into the school building, but Lancer is shortly behind him and pierces his heart. As Shiro is dying, he hears Lancer express distaste at his master's orders. Lancer leaves, then Shiro hears who we know to be Rin approach and begin using magical healing on him. After Rin leaves, Shiro falls asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, after waking up, uh, Shiro cleans his own blood off the school floor. <laughs> and mm-hmm. one of the most Shiro things that has happened so far. <laughs> like, this dude just fucking died to a weird magical being. Mm-hmm. Somehow survives with, like, a hole in his ch- chest still. Like, gets up and is like, mm-hmm. uh, I gotta get my blood off. It would be rude if I just left it here. <laughs> I mean, like, the way he describes it is, like, he's almost running on autopilot, it sounds like. Yeah. Where he basically is just like, oh, uh, there's blood on the ground. I have to clean up all that blood. That's bad. It's just very funny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, it's very, very funny. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, once he's done cleaning his own blood off, he goes home to find that his house is empty. He thinks about the two men he saw fighting, and he can't help but feel that the murders in Fuyuki are related to them. As he considers this, he hears the boundary field that Kiritsugu placed around the house trigger the alarm bell in the ceiling. He immediately understands that Amagus has arrived to finish finish him off. Uh, Shiro channels energy into the poster Fujimura found to strengthen it. Soon afterwards, Lancer attacks from the ceiling, and Shiro barely manages to roll out of the way. Lancer attacks again, but the strengthened poster deflects the blow. Uh, suddenly interested in Shiro's techniques, uh, because Lancer hasn't really seen this sort of thing before, because no one uses this type of magic, uh, except Yeah, for this is like, uh, it, like, Lancer... this kind of magic requires both, like, Shiro's stupid bad ability of, like, understanding the structure of a thing thoroughly, and also wasting magic to do this, um, instead of just applying it most efficiently. Yeah. Um, so Lancer toys with Shiro for a bit, uh, attacking him with blows that Shiro is, like, actually capable of following. Because if Lancer was attacking for real, Shiro would not be able to see it, basically. Um, right. However, Lancer is un- however, Lancer is unimpressed with what he sees uh, and decides to just finish Shiro off. Um, Shiro is barely able to escape through a window and deflects the spear that Lancer throws at him by just making a lucky guess. So I actually love this because he's like, yeah, if I didn't get this exactly right, I was going to die. Um, If I was too fast or too slow, uh, I was going to die. And because of the gap in skill, there was no chance in me ever being too fast. So I just swung as quick as I could. Yeah, I Um, love Shiro's reasoning here. And it's like, fuck, yeah, man, that's true. Like, there is no chance of you ever being too fast. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Lancer persists, though, uh, hitting Shiro with a roundhouse kick, sending him flying into a wall. 
Uh, Shira runs into the shed where he keeps his junk, uh, which is where he uh, woke up in uh, day one. Um, Lancer follows him in and prepares to land the finishing blow. Time seems to slow down as Shiro contemplates his impending death and the absurdity of this situation. Uh, basically thinking like, I got revived by someone and then am immediately going to die anyway. This is just stupid. This sucks ass, man. Fuck this. Yeah. As his mind rejects this ending, a female servant suddenly appears, um wearing uh, fancy shining armor, uh, deflecting Lancer's attack and driving him out of the shed. The first thing the woman says to him is, I ask of you, are you my master? Um, Lancer attempts to attack again, but he's no match for Saber. Uh, During the battle, Lancer notices that Saber is hiding her weapon, which is invisible even to Shiro. It's like she's holding... It's like she's holding air, basically. Mm Um... Lancer asks if her noble phantasm is a sword, but she refuses to answer. Lancer takes advantage of the lull in the fight to activate his noble phantasm. I think it's pronounced Gabolg? Gabolg, yeah. Gabolg. Um, And the way uh, she says it um, is the funniest fucking thing because she's like, oh, it could be a sword, or it could be an axe, or it could be a a spear, or or maybe even a bow. And it's just like (laughs) clearly fucking with him, and it's like, all right, Saber, you all right? Saber's mostly serious, but sometimes she can get cheeky. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Um, Yeah, uh, he activates Gabolk, and this is what causes... uh, uh, Saber to dis- declare that he is Ireland's man of light. Um, yeah, like Lancer basically like realizes that he's not going to win the normal way, so he is kind of forced to reveal who he is. Um, mm-hmm. Lancer faints by throwing the spear at Saber's feet, uh, which Saber attempts to dodge, but it, the lance appears to redirect itself and strikes her unerringly through the heart. Having a better view of what happened, however, Shiro can tell that the lance did not change its course, but instead, and this is a quote, changed the means so that the result would be to pierce Saber's heart. Yeah, so, the way Gabog functionally works is uh, by fucking with causality. Um, Like, if you throw Gabog, it... it, So, in Irish mythology, Gabog is a uh, spear... That, um, or Spear is not quite right. It is a weapon that Kukulin uses, um, that will unerringly strike, uh, the target, uh, and basically divides itself into a thousand different thorns or whatever, and, uh, latch onto a person's body and kill them without fail. Um, it it is basically impossible to miss and will always kill somebody if it hits them. Um, and that is basically how this works. Uh, Gabolg fucks with causality so that the moment you have thrown it uh it will hit the if it is possible for it to have hit the person's heart it will hit the person's heart and the way it will do that is like irrelevant like it will just take whatever path means it hits the person's heart the moment it's thrown yeah um no matter what the defender does gable locks fate into your heart being pierced um, mm-hmm. However, Saber, by some unknown miracle, is able to avoid a fatal blow. Uh, Lancer informs Saber that his master has ordered him to retreat, and warns her that she will die if she pursues him. But Saber, being Saber, tries to follow him anyway. However, she is stopped in her tracks by her own wound. 
Uh, Shiro is too mesmerized by her beauty to do anything useful, and eventually Saber stands back up, revealing that her wound has already healed, at least superficially. Uh, Saber explains again that she is Shiro's servant. Uh, Shiro feels his hand burning and notices the command seals have just appeared on him in the same place where he saw his hand bleeding earlier in the morning. Uh... Saber senses Archer and Rin outside and quickly leaps over the wall to attack them. Um, mm-hmm. I love that, like, when... <laughs> uh, Shiro is just such a hot... Like, all the only thing that exists in his brain is hot girl. <laughs> He's so fucking stupid. My man needs to get his mind off his dick. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is, um, I think, relevant uh, or semi-relevant. So the way uh, the gay bulk works in mythology uh, is it enters a man's body with a single wound like a javelin and then opened into 30 barbs, and the only by cutting away the flesh could it be taken from that man's body. Um, and it is supposed to be impossible to miss with. Um, so it will kill a person. Yeah. <laughs> but not Saber, somehow. Um mm-hmm. Shiro follows Saber, commanding her to stop just before she kills Rin, and this is where we uh, get to the end of the prologue. Uh, Saber asks Shiro why he just told her to do that, and he explains that he needs to know more about what's happening before she starts killing people. Saber tells him that he, if he wants her to not kill enemies, then he's going to have to use a command spell to force her to obey, because she's not going to leave an enemy alive. Uh... At this point, Rin speaks up and asks if even Saber would betray her own master just to kill someone, uh, because she has a decent idea that Saber has, like, a nobility complex. Uh, yeah. Saber lowers her sword, and Shiro finally notices that the girl is Rin Tosaka. Rin suggests that they head inside Shiro's house to talk. Uh, I love that Rin, even at sword point, facing inevitable death, is still a bitch. <laughs> uh-huh. She just can't turn it off. No. She's, she's great. Uh, Rin is surprised and frustrated to learn that Saber has been summoned by someone who has almost no magical ability. Because if we remember, Rin figured that Saber could only be summoned by someone as radical as her. Mm-hmm. Uh... She explains the basics of the Grail War and servants to Shiro, adding that if a master uses all their command spells, they will be killed. Uh, However, she does not reveal that she's the one who saved Shiro's life. Uh, She also mentions that servant summoning is not actual magic, it's a phenomenon only made possible by the Holy Grail, which recreates the souls of heroes to turn them into artificial gods. Um, I think this is where we go over, like, the basics of what the Holy Grail War is supposed to do. Yeah, so the basic premise of the Holy Grail War is uh, it is fundamentally uh, a a ritual um, through which uh, uh, you have a bunch of people, uh, seven people, and their seven masters and seven servants um, clashing to acquire the Holy Grail, which is an object which can grant any wish. Um, it, we'll get a little more details in the a few moments here, but yeah. like the core of it is, uh, you got to kill everybody in order to win the Holy Grail War. Yep. 
Uh, Rin speculates that Saber is not in her full form right now due to Shiro's lack of magical ability. Uh, Saber confirms this and adds that it will be difficult for her to even turn into a spirit like Archer can do or even replenish her magical energy because Shiro sucks so much. Uh, yeah, oh, and it's this wild catch-22, too, because, like, part of the thing about turning into a spirit that uh, uh, Archer had mentioned earlier is, like, it's one of the ways you can reduce the magic that uh, the servant is drawing. Um, but because Shiro has so little magic in the first place, he can't even do that. Or, or uh, Saber can't even do that. Yeah. So she can't uh, even reduce the amount of magic she is drawing. Uh, Saber also reveals that this is not the first time she's been summoned to the modern era, which surprises even Rin. <laughs> uh, Rin takes Shiro to Kyrie's church, uh, because he is now a participant, basically. Uh, yep. so he needs to get properly registered. Um, upon reaching the church, Saber, concealed in a raincoat, should she can't become a spirit to hide, which is a very good look. I love <laughs> It's so Saber. funny! Uh, uh, but yeah, Saber informs Shiro that she will stay outside and wait for him. Uh, Shiro is shocked to find out that Kyrie is a mage, since the Magic Association and the Holy Church are technically enemies and constantly trying to kill each other. Yeah, um, the premise is basically the Church views anybody who uses magic as, like, an unnatural being, um, who has defied the will of God. Yeah, you know, the basics. Um, it, it's, it's sort of World of Darkness it, it, in that. Yeah, it, it that do sense. be like that, yeah. Uh, uh, Rin explains that uh, uh, Kotamine Kyrie is a supervisor for the Holy Grail War. Uh, Kyrie tells Shiro that now that he has command seals, the only way to retire from being a master is to win the Holy Grail and wish for it. In addition, mm-hmm. by the Grail's own rules, only one person can obtain the Holy Grail. Ren interjects, clarifying that it's not necessary to kill all the other masters, since only servants can actually touch the Grail, uh, because the Grail is basically like an intangible spirit thing. Um, one <clears throat> must only eliminate the other servants. However, since, o- since servants can only exist with a master, and masters are much weaker than servants, it is generally easier and safer to target the masters. Yes. Uh, in addition, when a master is killed, a servant will stick around until their remaining magical energy runs out. A master who no longer has a servant could theoretically form a contract with such a servant and re-enter the war, as long as they had the command seals to do so. Uh, the first battle in Fuyuki happened 200 years ago. Oh, wait, sorry, I skipped ahead. My bad. Uh, I lost my mm-hmm. place. Um uh, Kyrie also reveals that this is the 726 Holy Grail sighting that the church has investigated. Yes, so this is the 726th uh, Holy Grail. Um, however, it is the fifth of the Holy Grail wars and the fifth of this kind of Holy Grail. Yeah. Um, there's a 726 things that are possibly Holy Grails. Grail-like enough that like might as well be. Yeah. It, so in the same way that like this Holy Grail is, like, not the one that literally held the blood of Jesus, but, like, is effectively, might as well be. Uh, there's been 726 of those. No biggie. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Uh, the first battle in Fuyuki happened 200 years ago, ago and mm-hmm. wars have repeated about every 50 years. Except uh, 60. 
Oh, I thought they said 50. My bad. Um, no worries. Uh, except for this one, the Fifth Holy Grail War, which happened only 10 years after the last one. Uh, he says that during the last war, an unsuitable master touched the Grail and caused the disaster that destroyed the town and left Shiro an orphan. Kotamine himself participated in the last war, but he refused to fight and obtained a half-completed Grail. Uh, mm-hmm. Shiro resolves to fight, and Rin asks Kyrie the order in which the servants were summoned. They are Berserker first, then Caster. Uh, after that, all the other servants, uh, except Archer and Saber, Saber, were summoned at roughly the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, before they leave, Kyrie taunts Shiro, saying that his wish to finally have a villain to fight against has finally come true. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't have a ton to add here. It's mostly, again, just describing like the mechanics by which this world works. Yep. Um, it is... Uh, one thing I think that is worth touching on here is uh, Kotamine is um, weirdly aggressive and hostile towards Shiro. Yeah, he seems to really um, not like him. <laughs> he he is like actively like fucking with him and kind of cruel to him. Uh, and Rin brushes it off as like, oh yeah, that's just how Kotamine kind of is. Um, but it. It feels personal. Like, the best way I can describe it is it feels personal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as they, uh, as, uh, as they head home, Rin parts ways with Shiro. Uh, Shiro interprets this as Rin not wanting to get too emotionally invested and make it difficult for her to eventually face him in battle. Before they're able to finish their goodbyes, though, they're interrupted by the strange girl with the white hair who Shiro met on the night of day two. Um, mm-hmm. uh, before, oh wait, sorry, that was actually night of day one, I think. Um, uh, I think you're correct. Yeah, actually, it was yeah. actually night of day one. Um, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, she now has a giant muscle man standing behind her. He, he big. <laughs> he real big. Uh, Rin identifies this servant as Berserker. Uh, the girl notices that Archer is not the creepy girl notices that Archer is not here and introduces herself as uh, Ilyas Veal von Eisenberg. Rin sees a, seems to recognize the surname. Uh, without <laughs> warning, she happily orders Berserker to kill them. Yep. Uh, Berserker is far too strong for Saber in her current condition and eventually inflicts a severe wound on her. Rin attempts to halt Berserker's advance by blasting him with magic, but his body simply absorbs the blow. Confident mm-hmm. in her victory, Ilya reveals Berserker's identity, the famous hero, hero of Greece, Heracles. Uh, mm-hmm. Shiro attempts to save Saber by pushing her out of the way. Berserker's attack is so quick, though, that his body simply shields her, and his stomach is removed from his body. Ilya doesn't... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ilya doesn't understand why Shiro sacrificed himself, says she's grown bored of the fight, and leaves. And that is the end of day three. Um, yeah, she is, like, clearly upset that Shiro is killed. Um, or seemingly killed. Yeah. Uh, 
Which is interesting because in one of the bad ends, uh, she murders the fuck out of Shiro. Well, no, she doesn't. Uh, she obliterates Shiro's body but leaves his head alive and unable to die forever and in a constant state of permanent pain oh, uh, indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, so if you choose to uh, dissolve the uh, – so you have a choice during the conversation with Kodamine. Um, one of the choices is uh, to resolve the fight or to uh, reject the fight and uh, dissolve your command seals. Uh, so you do – the whole bunch happens there, uh, but you still encounter Berserker and um, uh, Ilya, um, but instead Shiro is alone and doesn't have Saber or Rin, um, and so uh, you d just get completely fucking obliterated, uh, and she... Uh, it's it's like Umineko level brutal, which is a lot. Yeah, he can get pretty gory when he wants to. Yeah, he can. Um, yeah. So, that is the first three days. What do you think so far? Uh, I am liking this a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, I posted it on Twitter, but, uh, I'm mad that this shit's gonna get me. <laughs> like, I already know I'm gonna get got. It, ha it hasn't done it yet, but it's going to. I can feel it setting the hooks. For me being a person who cares way too fucking much about fate. Um, it is, so far for me, clearly a story about um, the way structures of power uh, enforce systems of violence on people. Um, both in terms of what I already know about the series and also like just what we've seen here. Um it is about the way these systems of power turn the people who exist in it into weapons for its continued existence. Um, and the way... And also the way, like, that those systems are designed to deliberately keep others out that might disrupt the nature of that structure. Yeah. Uh, like, so, the, in the conversation with Kodamine, um, the conversation with Kodamine is really interesting because it is uh, largely an expositional dump, but a lot of it, uh, what it does is also define um, Shiro ideologically. Yeah. Cause um, even though because it is, it is exposition, like, like the exposition is filtered through Kyrie's worldview um, mm -hmm. and is then like uh, sort of repeated back to him by like through the ideological filter that Shiro has. Yes. Um, and so, Shiro hears about the Holy Grail War, and his immediate reaction is, like, to try and understand who—okay, who started this? Why did somebody start this? Like, uh, he is immediately trying to understand uh, the structure and form of this system the moment it is presented to him and understand the why of people wanting to do this, um, which is— Important, because uh, uh, Rin does not ever once question that. Yeah, Rin's like, just like, I mean, you just do it. You just win. <laughs> like, Rin, Rin is so dedicated to this and so uh, tunnel-visioned, um, and uh, which is important because Rin is like the idealized form of what a Magus should be, or is at least trying to be that. Yeah. Um, And... So for her to be myopic, we can read as, like, this is how mages should be in general. 
Um, whereas Shiro is immediately trying to understand and parse the way these larger structures exist in totality, um, which is dangerous and a threat. <laughs> yeah, which is why, like, Kiri is like, look, just just kill the masters, okay? It'll be easier that way. Just, you know, don't make this harder for yourself. Just, just be cool, man. Just be cool. <laughs> you don't gotta be whack. Just be cool. Yeah, and like, uh... What makes it what makes it interesting is that like Kyrie isn't necessarily wrong. Like it is technically easier and safer to kill the masters if you want to be rational uh, mm-hmm. about like your own survival. You will do exactly what Kyrie and Rin are saying you should do. Yes. Um, well, and like Shiro is even conflicted about like the existence of the grail in and of itself. Like he clearly doesn't think the grail in and of itself is a good thing to exist. Um, and Kodamine even uses that as a means of uh, spurring Shiro to participation because he basically just says, well, obviously if it's a thing you think nobody should have, you should just win yourself and then you don't have to worry about it. Right. Yeah. That, that way no one else has it and you can be the good, good, good boy who makes the good, good wish. Uh huh. Um, you can be a good boy. Yeah. The, the, Don't you want to be the good boy, Shiro? Yeah, there's even a part there where, like, um, Shiro asks a question. I didn't put in the summary, but I, I like the conversation. Shiro asks, like, well, what if someone who's who shouldn't have it gets it? And is like, well, the person who gets it is the one who should have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they, it is, again, this ideology that, like, if... It, it, uh, a divine right to power. Like, if you have access to power, you should have always had re- access to power. It is your right. It is the, uh, this weird might makes right uh, ideology. Yeah. Um, the system. In that, like, the system cannot fail. It can only be failed. Yes. It, like it, having access to power is its justification in and of itself. Um, and Kodamine also uh, like basically pulls Shiro aside um, and. Clearly understands more, um, Kodamine knows more than he should at all, because he basically explicitly states, uh, uh, Shiro's internal desire to be a superhero that he hadn't, uh, told anybody about, uh, and also says, um, the ugly secret that Shiro himself had been aware of, but refused to acknowledge even to himself, which is that, like, yo, in order to be a superhero you need a clear and distinct evil to combat. And Kyrie is like, hey, listen, you got one right here. Aren't you happy? This is exactly what you wanted. The the Grail is already granting your wish. Yeah, and like part of that is like the existence of a villain means that someone is being victimized by that villain. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So like... Someone is being victimized by that villain and there is a clear target for you to fight. Yeah. Yeah, like, Shiro's wish cannot come true unless someone else is being hurt. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah, and, and, like, it makes it clear, like, hey, part of the reason Shiro's uh, ideal is, like, kind of fucked up is and kind of juvenile is, like, it is not the desire for there to be no conflict and for people not to be harmed. It's Shiro wants to be the one who saves people. Yeah. It, it is not, he doesn't want people to not need to be saved. He wants to be a person who is useful and saves others. And like, that's not a bad thing to want necessarily, 
but it's short-sighted and it's not enough. We yeah. see that it's not enough because it's not enough for Sakura. We All it does is put her in a position of danger because it's not like... Shiro wants to save her, but all it did is hurt her. He didn't actively seek out ways to help take care of her. Yeah, th- that's the difference between Shiro and, like, a, a, like, say, Superman. Like, Superman doesn't necessarily want to be a superhero. Like, if... If uh, no one else was ever in danger ever ever again in Metropolis, uh, Superman would have a pretty would be pretty happy just settling down and being Clark Kent for the rest of his life. Um, yeah, he would marry Lois Lane. He'd be very happy. Yeah, but Shiro Shiro wants to be Superman, um, even if it means that there has to be conflict for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um. It, it's it's a in that sense he's actually a little more like Batman in the more in the more cynical takes on Batman I should say yeah and I I actually appreciate them highlighting this so early because it is very easy to just be like yeah he wants to be a superhero and that's selfish and have it, you be get like what that doesn't that doesn't really make sense. But like when you highlight the fact that like, no, 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 his desire isn't for people to be saved. It is for him to be the one doing the saving. Yeah. Um, it it immediately makes it clear like, Oh, this is about him. This isn't about the people in danger. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an important distinction that like, maybe this guy isn't, maybe this protagonist has issues. (laughs) I, I don't. I don't know why you think a boy who dreams only of swords and his trauma might have issues. Uh, in this story about people who instrumentalize themselves constantly um, towards violence, I don't. A, a, a boy who is continually described in terms of the tools he uses and the ways he uh, uh, amplifies them and the labor that he does. I don't see why you might be concerned for his mental well-being. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed what I've read so far. Uh, I finished this like three, three or four days after we, uh, finished our last, our, uh, last Gosh Journalism episode. And I have been vibrating with excitement, um, mm-hmm. to be able to talk about this. Uh, yeah, I, I really like it. I enjoy the prose more than I expected. Uh, it is interesting and it is like clearly doing something interesting. Um, I am yeah. Nasu excited has to some, see where it goes. Nasu has some shit to say and um, uh, and is uh, and, and only part of it is Takeuchi just likes to draw hot people in armor. I, fucking shout outs to Takeuchi. Like, my man is out here just drawing some dot dudes and I respect him for it. My man is like, these men need to have their titties out. And I'm <laughs> like, yes, they do, Takeuchi. My man, you are here and giving me what I need. <laughs> uh, anyway, before we end this out, I just want to uh, go over um, some of the, the voice actors. I'm simply going over the, the four main cast here. Uh, so as uh, Rin, we have Kana Ueda, um, who you may know from... Uh, as Rachel Alucard in Blaze Blue, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, Yumi uh, Fukuzawa from the prototypical uh, Yuri anime Maria Watches Over Us. Um, 
We also uh, have Archer, who is uh, voiced by Junichi Suwabe. Uh, he voiced, the, he's the Japanese voice of Seymour Guado in Final Fantasy X, uh, which is great. <laughs> Uh, I, I never play. I, I don't remember him from Final Fantasy X. Oh man, uh, he's the guy. He's the guy with the yaoi hands. Uh, as uh... that's like most of that. Game. I, listen, <laughs> I think Final Fantasy X is a perfectly interesting game. Yaoi hands could describe a couple okay. characters right. in that game. Uh, okay, well, do you know My Hero Academy specifically? Do you I know, do. Yes. Do you know Eraserhead? Yes. He he plays Shoto Aizawa, who is a racer in that. Okay. Yeah. Like one of the best characters. Yeah, I can hear that. I fuck with that. Yeah. Um. Here, uh, here we have like uh one of one of my favorite little cast things. Uh, so Shiro is played by Noriaki Sugiyama. Uh, he's a minor character in Code Geass. Uh, Rivals Cardemond, who is like one of those schoolboys. Um who's part of, like, uh, Lelouch's school life. Uh, but more importantly, he is Sasuke Uchi- Uchiha in Naruto. Fuck yes! <laughs> Hell yes! That rules! Uh, both characters who are uh, fucked up and get um, uh, weaponized by their uh, other people in this world. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about it, and you might be right. Also, I thought you were about to tell me Shiro was voiced by Norio Wakamoto, and I was going to go apeshit. <laughs> Man, that'd be some range. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, fucking Norio Wakamoto just starts eating ramen in the middle of a, a scene. Uh, and then finally, uh, the last one I'll do for today, uh, we have Saber, who is voiced by uh, Ayako Kawasumi. Um, uh one of my favorite roles of hers is Lafiel from Crest of the Stars. Uh, I'm not sure if you've watched it. It's a uh, really not. good um, sort of like uh, space opera, basically, with space elves. Mm-hmm. Um, she plays Lafiel, who is the main space elf. Um, she is also Les- uh, Lesia from Grand Blue. Okay. Huh. I was not expecting that, but me okay, e- sure. Yeah, me either. Um, so yeah, uh, those are just a sampling of, uh, the, uh, the roles, uh, that are played by, uh, uh, those four actors. Um, I'll, uh, I'll pepper in, um, other voice actors, uh, you know, as we get to them mm-hmm. by, you know, whoever is most plot relevant for that moment, uh, or also if they die. <laughs> uh, uh, if, yeah, uh, believe it or not, people might die in this. Yeah. People will die if they are killed. Yeah, and boy, they sure do get killed. <laughs> They, that shit do happen in this. Yes, that is true. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you. I'm going to say thank you for joining me on this adventure, but you're the one who started this. Yeah, no, this is my fault. I am fully willing to accept the blame for this. Uh, this is my fault, and I'm okay with it. Uh, honestly, it, it's... Uh, there is a part of me that's... Well, actually, uh, uh, before before I was really glad we started doing this, there was a part of me that was kind of glad that you convinced me to do this because, like, I had been wanting to get a more uh, thorough knowledge of, like, what Fate is about because, like, the anime is good and all, but by its very nature, uh, it's not going to be able uh, to cover everything that a 60-hour visual novel does because that's insane. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it, it is clearly, like... Um... 
it is clearly a fragment of a full story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, while, while the anime adaptations, like, um, well, I can't, I don't know Studio Dean, but, like, the Unlimited Blade Works adaptation by UFO Table, like, certainly isn't bad. Um, I, no. I like it quite a bit. You know, it's, it can only do so much. It got some sick animation. Oh, boy, it sure do. Uh, that's sort of I'm gonna go UFO watch one of those fights does. in there. Yeah, UFO Table is like good at animation sometimes, huh? Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Uh, okay, um, but what if, what if we got what if we got like Shaft and Gynax to collaborate on a on one? God. I just listen. I just want to see. I mean, fucking somebody do a fucking Shaft head tilt. Uh huh. I mean, Shaft. Okay. Well, you're. We'll just wait till Fate Extra Last Encore, because Shaft animated that. Yes, 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 yes. I can't and wait to be And the person who upset. does the head tilt first is not the one you will ever expect. Fuck yes. Uh, I fucking, dude, I fucking love the Shaft head tilt so much. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I forgot to make a, uh, call, uh, I, I had a outro phrase in my head were when I was thinking about doing this, and then now that we're actually here, I totally forgot what I was going to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to maintain the tradition of refusing to do an actual outro and just sort of ending unceremoniously. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm sure I'll figure time. it out like ten, 10 minutes after we stop recording. Uh, I, I believe in you. Yeah. Oh, wait. No, um, I remember. What's that? Podcasts end when they stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off! I'm ending the recording now, fuck you. <laughs>